through questions. Uh, they're the questions that I had and I have. Uh, every, I've taught this class before. Uh, it evolves because I evolve. Um, obviously, there are certain things over the years, theologically, that I've kind of anchored into, although I've moved a few anchors over the years. Uh, but when I say anchor, the things that I feel fairly fixed on, and it, you know, um, I don't flippantly just pick up one and cast it elsewhere unless I really see it. And um, uh, the study of the Holy Spirit can be uh, uh, lead you into a lot of distraction, or it can lead you into great blessings. I'm obviously hoping the latter. Um, I guess in some ways you have to go through some of the distractions because there is so much confusion about it. And uh, I don't know anyone that really has the absolute perfect fix on this thing. I read enough scholars and commentaries and on and on and on over the years. And uh, uh, I started this study literally um, when I was in college. And I'll talk more about that later. But uh, I remember sitting in the privacy of my life, uh, being very confused about this, and it mattered to me. Uh, because I was uh, really uh, just, in, I don't know, I guess the word would be embroiled in the confusion of this, and it kind of hung me up and um, because of my experiences. And uh, so I remember sitting down with a, just a, a ream of three-ring notebook paper, and um, I wrote the questions, who, what, when, where, and why, about the Holy Spirit. And every time I ran into a text that had the Holy Spirit in it, I stopped and tried to answer those questions if it answered them. And then I tried to pull it all together and figure out, well, so what do I come out of this with? And that's where it started for me. And, um, uh, you know, and I'm still trying to work through some of these things. But I'm hoping that uh, I can help accelerate some of your thinking. Um, I'm not here to just affirm what you believe. I don't know what all of you believe, but I will tell you what I understand from scriptures that I think God is saying. And, um, you know, in that what we are in integrity pursuing in the first place. What has God actually said? Has he spoken? And, has, and what has he actually said? Those are really the two fundamental questions of encountering listening to God. And um, so anyway, that was for free. Um, this is where we, we started last week. Here's the question. How do we receive the Holy Spirit? And uh, just quickly, just remember we went... We first of all said it's first very important that we define what does it mean though to possess the spirit, uh, the meaning of it, and we understood looking at Romans 8, Psalm 50, uh, 51, uh, that that understanding and it would make sense. That of course, the Holy Spirit is a person; it is the person of God, and um, that He actually comes and dwell us. That it, it the, it's really the question, uh, the meaning of behind the receiving of the Spirit has to do with God's fellowship with us. God actually relates to us. God. Uh, intimately um, uh, comes in relationship with us through his Holy Spirit. Uh, I think that is why, uh, and I didn't mention this last week, why the scriptures speak about you currently, present tense, possessing eternal life. Eternal life is that which re uh, that has relationship with God. That's what was lost in the garden, the curse, uh, the separation from God. And ever since that moment, God has been rebridging that moment. Now, if you pay attention, that's what makes heaven, heaven. Uh, when God ultimately, and, and it's fully realized, the kingdom of God uh, coming down to earth, and, and uh, uh, we, we have 
in the fullest sense, face-to-face, this renewed, restored uh, relationship with God without the curse, without all the things that went along with that. And um, uh, the Spirit is a deposit, we're going to get to this later on, that, that's, that where God uh, put that seal there, He set it in motion, and that we're already presently realizing this relationship with God on a very intimate level. Um, so there you go. Uh, then we, um, I, I just put this in front of you because this was some of the struggles that I went through where uh, a common teaching today, and it kind of hung me up, and where it's suggested that you really go through two stages uh, basically in your Christian life in terms of the Holy Spirit, that you receive the, at least the Spirit in partial filling on the front end of conversion, but later on a second work of grace comes your way where the Spirit comes in fullness. And I'm asking you to stop and think about that and the implications of that because that will come into play throughout the rest of this semester. And uh, you've been exposed to it whether you realized it or not. And I hope in a way you're already beginning to connect some dots. We're going to come back to this one in a few minutes before we uh, get through with our class tonight as I complete this question. We looked at Galatians, remember, chapter 3. And remember, first of all, that it, it says in this text that we receive the Spirit by faith. Not by works, not by heroic deeds, not by your doing something. You receive it when you put your faith in Jesus. And then Paul made the comment to the Galatians, having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to earn Him through human effort? And so, again, this idea that it's in the beginning. Then we went to uh, the text in John 17. It's a glorious text uh, there, uh, the, day of, uh, uh, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus uh, stood there uh, as they were just literally parched and thirst, and um, uh, this, this ceremony, the water ceremony, where they would take the, the vessel, and they would scoop it up from the poolside loam, and they would march back to the temple, to the water gate, and they would celebrate, and it was a celebration of God sending the rains on for their harvest, but it was a reflection back and thankfulness that God uh, uh, delivered the water uh, uh, there in the, uh, in the desert and striking the rock. Um, but there was also this understanding of this promise Remember, as uh, Jesus went on to talk, he was talking about how he is the fulfillment of this promise, um, uh, that God would one day, uh, just as, he, as we see water being poured upon the parched lands there as they walk through the desert, God would then pour forth his spirit uh, upon his people. And this promise has, has uh, trailed and lingered with the Jews all through their history as, a, as a, an incredible moment of anticipation. And uh, we're going to get to that here in just a little while. But understood as part of that theology, the Spirit, and when Jesus was on the earth, had not yet been given. Not in this way, not this promise, but it is coming to fruition through the life of Jesus. And as he parts and he goes to his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, then the Spirit of God is going to come. Remember, we talked about that in John 14, 15, and 16 uh, uh, prior to this. So we talked about not only is it by faith, and in the beginning, but very, I think it's very important that faith, the focus of that faith is not in the Spirit of God. The focus of that faith is in Jesus himself. And I think that becomes an important filter that you're going to find comes to uh, help you later on as we look at this. <clears throat> um, now, this is where we left off last week. We talked about this text, and uh, uh, it gives you this... Uh, and we walk through I'm not going to walk through the whole context. It's really kind of neat, of course. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Things are kind of storming in. The promise fulfilled uh, of the Spirit finally coming. Uh, this is uh, 40 days, uh, 50 days after uh, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. The Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. 
And, um, um, and of course, you see the, the, the issue here as he responds to those people who had crucified Jesus, who had turned a blind eye to all the miracles, who uh, rejected Jesus as God preordained and, and knew would take place. But through that death, he would save all of us. And, um, uh, and then as, as this appeal comes out, rather than destruction, he says, there's hope for you guys. Uh, and, and he talks about that he calls them to repent and to, to be able to, to immerse themselves in connection with Jesus through baptism. And another, notice the other, pro, the other promise is they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is for everybody. Now, let's pick up there. Um, I gave you all a text to read last week and told you to think about it. Does anyone remember what that is? Okay, we'll get to that in just a minute. I was curious if anyone actually remembered. Um, one other text, though, now. Let me build upon this. Then we're going to get to the Colossians 2 passage. And uh, I don't know how long I'll keep you tonight. I hope not the entire time that we normally do. I'm going to say my piece, and we're going to be done. Um, 1 Corinthians. Now, I'm, I'm trying to take the time to get, let you see that there's a context for what Paul writes. You don't just look at the verse, but understand the broader context. You understand the broader context. You understand the, the specifics that he's getting into. Now, the church in Corinth had a lot of different issues going on within them. If you read the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul just basically has this long list, and he starts basically one at a time choosing them out and responding to them. Some of these issues that he's responding to are because they have written him questions. Starting in verse 7, he starts chapter 7 saying, Now, about the things that you wrote to me about. And now he's just lining them up and talking about them. Well, they're, and they come in units throughout 1 Corinthians' letter. One of the units is chapters 12, 13, 14. Okay? And if you see the broader context, they were disunified. They were splintered and fragmented in several ways. One of the ways that they were fragmented was because of their use of the gifts of the Spirit. And he'll talk about this in context. And the fundamental problem that they were having is that they were using the gifts for all the wrong reasons. What was in question was not the gift. What was in question was their lack of love toward each other. They were using them to parade themselves and to show off their gifts, especially, interestingly enough, in this context, those who were tongue speakers. And it was a very, you know, it was a very flashy gift. And so they were saying, look at me, look at me, look at what God, how he uses me. And they were assuming that because they had the gift that they somehow were also, that it, that was equivalent to being mature. And Paul says, possessing a gift does not make you mature. You guys, but he calls them infants in Christ. You guys may be able to have some talents and gifts that the Spirit is trying to work through you, but you're acting like children because you're so selfish in how you're going about using them. If you understand the gifts, they were meant to be used cohesively together to build up all of us. And he uses the word um, uh, edifice, to edify, throughout the text, especially when you get to chapter 14. So it's in that context that Paul begins to share these things. Okay, so there's, Now let's look at the smaller window. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. We looked at this text back. We talked about the Spirit Himself, talking about the idea of unity and diversity. 
that the Spirit, uh, that God, the, the idea of the Trinity, that God is three in one, and it's hard for us to grasp this fully. How can God, there be one God, and yet there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go back and retrace all that, but we talk about this text because in what God creates, you see that complexity. And we should not expect God to be less complex than what He creates. And so uh, we, we looked at that text as idea that the body of Christ, we, though we are many members, we form one body. Now, there's where he's going with this. He's dealing with the disunity within their midst, and specifically how they are being disunified by their use of the gifts of the Spirit. Now, he says, notice, for we were all, or so, so it is with Christ. Now, here's how he's going to kind of draw them together. He's making an argument with them. He's trying to, get, let me appeal to you to think about this. If the body is one, though it is many. Now, why would that be so? And he makes an appeal to a universal experience that everyone who's a believer shares in common. He says this, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, if I would just simply ask you the simple question, when, does, when do we find ourselves actually being um, a part of, cohesively joining in with the one body, according to Paul. That we're baptized into one body. Now, he didn't say some of you. Notice what I've underlined. All, 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 all. He's referring to a universal agenda with these people. And in light of Paul's statements, is it possible then that only some had received the Holy Spirit? No. Because this is something that all have received. Now, um, Paul's point, though there are many members, we are all one body. Why? Because there is one experience for all Christians without exception, and all Christians were made to, and he uses an interesting phrase here, we're, we are uh, given to one spirit to drink. That in the waters of ba uh, ba baptism, we drink in the spirit. We take the spirit in. Isn't that interesting uh, language there? And, of course, again, it, it tends to tie itself in with, once again, by faith in Jesus in the beginning. Now, let's go to this, uh, back to this thing and get you to see this in contrast now with what a little bit we've looked at. Um, Again, the idea that, that, that the Christianity comes to you in stages, your growth process, and that God acts in your life on the initial conversion stage, and at that point you receive a partial uh, reception of the Holy Spirit, and that there is this um, anticipation that you're supposed to carry with you where you kind of upgrade, that, that it becomes supplemental. What they call the second work of grace is what you'll read scholars using the phraseology as the common phrase for this idea of what you should anticipate. This God comes back in a second work of grace. But what strikes me is that what bridges those two things together are things that you do. The reason you don't get the, full, uh, the, the fullness of the Spirit is because uh, you're, you're not yet prepared for it. You're not holy enough. You're not yielded enough. You're not surrendered enough to God. You're not purified enough. So after going through this, this arduous process of cleansing your life up a little bit more and making it more ready as a receptor for the fullness of the Spirit, um, uh, when you finally get to that point and it's different from person to person, the timing is different from person to person, then bam, it just happens to you. And we're going to talk more about that later in terms of the theology and where that comes from. 
Um, so you've seen this upgrade moment where you go from one stage to another. In other words, you see the conversion and reception process being fragmented. You all at least see that much. Am I making sense to you? Okay. Now, now let's look at Colossians in context. This is the text I want you to look at, and I hope you'll see why I have you looked at this. Okay, context of Colossians. Can anyone tell me what the context of Colossians is? Because this means absolutely nothing if you don't understand the basic framework of the letter. Yes? Good. That, that's a good way, to, good place to begin. What's, what, where else, what else is he suggesting to you? What was these? What were these false teachings? Okay. Well, let me tell you. I was curious if y'all looked around at this at all. Um, he starts by saying this: "See to it that no one takes you no, uh, captive through hollow and deceptive." philosophies, um, which depend on human tradition and the ele uh, ele uh, elemental spirits, uh, spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, if you read on later on, we're going uh, uh, to read now what's sandwiched in between, but uh, what later on, he starts to describe this. And he says, uh, well, let me just pull it to it and take you to a few texts in case you're actually writing this down. Um, Okay, verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. So we're dealing with dietary laws. Sound familiar? The Jews had a very clear dietary law. So you see some Jewish elements where people were binding upon these Christians in Colossae, saying, you're not a real Christian unless you also keep all these Jewish dietary laws. Or with regard to religious festivals and new moon celebrations and Sabbath day. Not only do they go maintain the, the, the eating dietary laws, but there are all these feast days that are also mandated to make your Christianity legit. So you've got all these uh, 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 feast days that were bound upon your life. And then he goes on and said, these are a shadow. Uh, then he goes on in verse 18, do not let anyone who do, delights in false humility and in worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. You uh, uh, have this uh, interesting little element of, of this um, uh, unhealthy focus upon uh, this worship and direction of angels in the context of this. And um, uh, then he goes on, such persons goes into great details about, what, uh, details about what he has seen, so they're claiming certain visions. You've got kind of an elitist Christian who's saying, well, I've had this vision about heaven, and I've seen the angels, and I've talked to them about this and this, and you haven't, so, uh, you know, I'm more connected. And if you're really full of God the way I am, you'll have these experiences too. And that should begin to maybe connect some dots with how you hear the Spirit talked about today. Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, uh, since you, verse 20, since you have died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Obviously, there was also some elements of asceticism, Greek asceticism that was implanted into this. And so there was this uh, 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 lifestyle placed upon these Christians that uh, not only had all these rules and regulations addendum to your faith in Jesus, but also this kind of self-abasing lifestyle of denial. 
that was uh, 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 enforced upon you in specifics. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. A true Christian doesn't have that fullness uh, uh, a way of life that those maybe in the world do. So you do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And um, it's a very unusual eclectic mixture. Um, they don't find parallels to that in the other letters of Paul with the problems the other churches were having, but in Colossae, which was just kind of due um, uh, east of, of Ephesus. So you know where Ephesus is on the, 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 the shore of Asia? And just go inside, and there's Colossae. Um, they call it the Colossian heresy. To put it very simply, it is this to me. It's a Jesus plus religion. Jesus is not enough. So you need Jesus plus whatever addendum you want to add to this to make you a legit Christian. Because you're not full until you have Jesus and all of these things. And I hope that you're beginning to stop thinking, well, do we do that today? Now, notice what Paul now in addressing this issue, how he's going to draw them away from this Colossian heresy, this this. Uh, confusion that they've been thrown in turmoil about there at this church because they've got this kind of saved by grace, but then they're now trying to work on it. Very similar in that sense to the Galatian letter, except the issue there was just circumcision. Right? It was Jesus plus circumcision. And Paul got rather miffed about this. Now, he says this in response. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Now, put that in your own words. What did he just tell you? If you can't translate that for yourself, then it's just words on a piece of paper. It doesn't make any sense. Now, okay. In essence, yes, but okay, when you look at the bodily form, he's talking about Jesus there. Jesus in the flesh. When you got when you saw Jesus in the flesh, he was one hundred percent full God. Okay? Step one. Now notice what he goes on to say. And in him, wait a minute. Oh, I'm sorry, I I missed it. And you have been given, notice, past tense, completed, fullness in Christ. Now, the word, uh, uh, just so you know, the word fullness, pleroma in the Greek, it means uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, take a glass and you fill it all the way up and it's full. In other words, you put another drop in, it spills out. There's no room for some more to be added in. So just think in your mind, if you get Jesus, what do you get? You get Everything. The fullness of God comes with Jesus. So if you're in Jesus, you've got fullness. Does it sound like God comes in fragments to you? You get a little bit of them here, and a little bit of them here, and a little bit of them here, and you add it all up, and you finally become a full Christian later on. That was the problem with the Colossians. If you got Jesus, you got it all. There's no, there's, there's no room left to put more in in terms of the blessings and relationship with God. 
in Jesus is the fullness of God. So if you get Jesus, you got fullness of God. His argument's not very complicated. So he goes on to say this. And the question is, well, when does that take place? I find the language very interesting. In him, you were also circumcised. Okay, remember the Jewish uh, concept, males, eight days old. Jesus had happened to him, poor thing. All the males did, eight day they went in. Priest took it and just sliced away and identified them as legit Jews. But he says, this circumcision is done by Jesus. And it's a spiritual surgery, not a fleshly surgery. The idea of circumcision means to cut away. Now, notice what's being cut away here. The putting off of the sinful nature. Jesus comes and cuts away your sinful nature. A circumcision not done by the hands of man, but a circumcision done by Christ. Notice, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God. The same power, by the way, that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, do you see the fundamental argument he just made to these people to help them uh, uh, work through and reason out of this Jesus plus religion agenda that was being bound upon them And he says, well, don't you remember you received the circumcision of the cutting away of the sinful nature when you were baptized into Jesus Christ? Same language we've been hearing all the way along. My point is I'm trying to show you there's a kind of cohesive consistency here. Um, and um, the only way I have a problem with this and is if I don't, I don't understand the, the connection between baptism and faith. Now, I think you can, you can practice baptism in a, in a very works-oriented, fleshly way. I've heard it taught that way, practiced that way, some, some more, some, like some sort of magic wand that God owes you something if, if uh, you've been through this uh, event. Um, I'm just trying to say, listen to what Paul said in the first century. Has God spoken? So what has he said? And notice the connection between the fullness of God and, and, and when that comes into your life. Um, and the issue is your faith in the power of God. I think what happens, and you'll see where I'm going with this, you know, I'm talking about baptism in the context of this reception of the Spirit and, and the whole picture. Um, uh, if you drain baptism of its significance, then you basically have to go searching elsewhere for the significance. And I think that happens in our culture, um, and it's, it's, it's part of the, the problem. What, what I understand is baptism is not where you work, it's where God works. I simply acknowledge God working in my life. I'm passive at that moment. I, I, I acquiesce. That's, that's not a good word. That sounds fatalistic. Um, I choose to submit myself to the power of God at that moment. Um, so anyway, you see the idea there, and I think it's very important. Fullness comes with Jesus. You get Jesus, you don't get partial fillings of anything of God. You get all of it. So, I would say, by faith, 
in the beginning, that faith is in the focus of that faith is Jesus himself, not in the Spirit. Remember our mantra for this class. The Holy Spirit's work is centered in Jesus Christ. So just go ahead and say it with me. The Holy Spirit's work is centered in Jesus Christ. If we understand that, I'm filling this, that, that up, this container, with these ideas, um, uh, then I think it will help you filter through and making some decisions on what the Spirit is doing in your life and what He's not doing in your life. And I want you to know that He is doing something in your life, and that's where we're going to go next week. But uh, we've got to go here first. One more text, and I will be done. Titus chapter uh, 3. Verses 4 through 7. Now listen to the language here. Now uh, uh, remember Titus was uh, an evangelist, as was Timothy. He was a preacher. Um, He was kind of an unfortunate soul. I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because he was sent to the island of Crete. And when you hear Paul's description of the people at Crete, it was a tough place to preach. These guys were really self-obsessed and when you read Paul's description of Creed, it, it, it sounds like the American culture. And um, um, so anyway, he was sent there to preach. So he's trying to help Timothy navigate life. And uh, remember, it's the, the, I, I read the verses just prior to this at Devo. It talks about uh, um, how uh, we were all, in, you know, we too were once all enslaved by all of our passions and pleasures. Remember that text from Tuesday night? Um, uh, how we were hating and hating one another. And then, you, of course, you come to the, you know, the but, you know, the, the, the radical change that takes place. That God has got something that's going to save us from all of that enslavement in life. That's really the meaning of this text. But notice what he says in the context of it. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, notice the context. He saved us. So we're dealing with this point where God saves us. And all the language of this whole text has to do in the beginning when God saves us. Not because of righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. He saved us, notice, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Um, I have a Greek word up there, not to frighten you, just so you, it has significance. Uh, Lutron, L-O-U-T-R-O-N, L-O-U-T-R-O-N, Lutron. Um, the Lutron was uh, that vat of water that sat outside um, uh, uh, where the Holy of Holies was. You remember the, the setup of the temple area? You had the, 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 the temple proper to big, huge area, then you got closer as you walked through. The, you had the court of Gentiles and the court of women, and then you had the the inner court, and there at the inner court where they had this, you know, that's where they offered the sacrifices on the altar and had this vat of water. And the priest, before they would go into the presence of God, would go through this ritualistic washing process in water. Uh, there's the word, and that was the lutron, okay? So my point is, Paul is simply using imagery that all these, the, these people in that culture would clearly understand. Um, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and, and uh, you know, all scholars across the table will tell you that, he's, that we're dealing here with baptismal language. Um, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Notice, whom God has poured out on us generously, not partially. He just lavishes it on your life. Get the idea? 
through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, again, you're dealing with the initial point where you go from darkness to light, from, from death to living again, from separated from God, having this enormous, uh, indescribable intimacy with God. Justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Uh, obviously, the fullness of it when Jesus comes and we get to see Him face to face. And so sometimes you'll see the language where it speaks about uh, uh, eternal life being a present tense. I write these things to you, dear children, so that you may know, John says, that you have eternal life, present tense. But here it looks like uh, you're seeing the idea where eternal life yet uh, is realized more uh, in its completeness later on in the future. Hope. Okay. Well, you just have to kind of read the text and, and put those together. Um, so, the point. There are two elements in the new birth. I think in my mind, as I look at this text, uh, as often as times you pay attention, uh, they have the words of Jesus uh, 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 in the background of their own thoughts. That is, the New Testament writers, whether it's Peter or Paul or the other writers, uh, they're reflecting on something that Jesus said. Uh, I'm not sure. It doesn't exactly say this, but it seems to reflect, and I think Paul certainly had in his mind when Jesus said in John 3, uh, Nicodemus, and remember that encounter, which is pretty a neat, pretty neat event. I wish we had time to talk about all that. Uh, he says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then you had Nicodemus kind of not quite getting it. He looked at him and said, unless you are born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, even in Jesus' mind, there was, there was two, these two aspects that were cohesive um, in his mind. The two elements of water and spirit. The bath, the lutron of the, uh, of the new birth is also the bath where we receive the Holy Spirit, which sounded again just like all the other texts that we've looked at. Which she says, he poured out. When did God pour out his spirit? In the context of the new birth. Um, it's not you receive the new birth and then later on you receive, after dedicating yourself more completely, uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I want you to see the, this kind of cohesion uh, as you look at all of this. Um, and we're going to play this out and, and we're going to find this as we get into Acts. It becomes a big deal. In fact, someone was asking me a question before the class because they uh, remembered a text uh, where it seems like the Spirit came at odd times to people. Um, if you want to kind of think ahead, uh, you get to Acts 10. And just go read that. And um, so how do you explain that then? It, it tends to, at least in first reading, suggest, well, you got these people, they received the Spirit of God, and then later, you know, then they followed up with the baptism. So, you know, you got, it's kind of an interesting framework. Uh, so maybe it is different from person to person. I'll just let you kind of struggle with that a little bit. I'm just saying what I'm looking at, and I'm seeing a, a cohesiveness here, that when I look at the issues of the issues of faith and, and uh, uh, baptism and the Holy Spirit, that we tend to fragment them. Whereas when I hear Peter, Paul, Jesus speaking, he tends to see them as, as, as a, an organic whole. He doesn't separate them as different separate ideas. He draws them together as one unit of thinking. It's kind of the way we look at conversion. We tend to fragment it up. and We, we, we do this to ourselves. I talk about these steps that we go in. 
Um, I never, ever heard a New Testament writer speak about conversion in those phrases. Never. Find it. Step one, step two, step three. You'll fragment, 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 fragment. What you will find is that they speak about them cohesively. Here are the texts. Here's, no, here's Paul's discussion of conversion. Look at his language. Look at how he presents it. How he talks about it. This cohesive idea of the Spirit and baptism and faith. And they don't find themselves uh, in, in conflict with one another. So, uh, so we'll build upon this. And, uh, and I'm going to be getting to the book of Acts uh, later on. It's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through that because there's a lot of interesting things that happen there. And I'm going to do my best to try to make some sense of what I think is, makes sense out of it. Uh, although plenty of people disagree with it. Um, so there you go. How do you receive the Spirit? This is on the most fundamental level for right now, if we're building these blocks, uh, what I understand God to say. Um, next week, we're going to tackle the question. We'll begin to tackle the question, open up the idea. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Now, if indeed I do possess the Spirit, so what can I now therefore expect God to do for me? How does this play out? And that goes some interesting directions. And um, um, uh, I do know this. God is doing something. The Spirit of God is, is not inactive in your life personally. And um, if the Spirit of God were not in you, you could not live the radical call of discipleship that God calls you to. Maybe one of the reasons we have struggles in acknowledging and recognizing the Spirit's activity is because we're so withdrawn from living out the radical call of discipleship as Jesus calls us. So we don't need the Spirit's help. Or we never get to that point where we sense Him actually helping us as we walk our Christian life. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that kind of works its way through. But anyway, that's where we're going to go next week, okay? Just for right here, where we are right now, any thoughts, questions, comments? And let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful that you indwell us, that you desire and cherish that intimacy with us even though we do not deserve this. Uh, but we yearn for it deep down within us. It resonates with the most basic fundamental need and desire within each of our hearts.